Lord, we love you and thank you for your great love for each of us. Thank you that we never walk alone, that you're always with us, that you always care for us, you always watch over us, and that your grace is greater. I pray, Father, as we spend some time looking into your word tonight, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we finished up with Samson over the last couple weeks. We studied all four chapters concerning him. And this week, we're turning to a gentleman by the name of Micah and the Danites, or those from the tribe of Dan, who turned to idolatry. This later portion of the book of Judges actually becomes sort of an appendix to the book, kind of like the book of Ruth. Uh, it gives us insight into the confused condition of the nation of Israel uh, that, that was present throughout the whole book of Judges. It is possible that the last five chapters of Judges do not take place chronologically after the events of Samson, uh, just like the book of Ruth, because the book of Ruth takes place sometime during the book of Judges, but we don't know when. If you remember back to when we started the book of Judges, it chronologically lasted anywhere between three and 400 years. So the book of Ruth got stuck in there and it is suggested that these last few chapters may not be chronological. With that being said, it was a time of political and spiritual upheaval in the land, which we will see described for us. So chapter 17, verse one. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son, to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Then he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith. And he made it into a carved image and a molded image. And they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and had an ephod and a household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Micah steals 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother. And his mother apparently put a curse on the, 700, or the 1,100 shekels of silver that her son stole. Now, I'm going to just say something. Um, the five Philistine lords each gave... Delilah, 1,100 shekels of silver to betray Samson. And so I don't believe in accidents in the Bible, so there must be some significance to that. But I will confess, I don't know what it is. But it dawned on me at this very moment. But anyway, she, she noticed that her silver had been stolen and she put a curse on it. Something like, you know, God curse whoever stole my silver. And when he confesses that he stole the silver, she replies, 
Well, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. This confuses me. I don't understand how she had cursed whoever it was who took the silver, and now she wants to bless her son. What makes it even worse is she said that she dedicated this 1,100 shekels of silver to the Lord. And if you notice, your Bible probably has Lord, all capital letters, which means it's the name of God. So not just some random little G God, but to Jehovah. She had dedicated this money to him to make a carved image. This shows the depravity of the people that she dedicated money to the Lord in order to use it to break one of his commandments, which Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make any graven image. Once the idol was made, Micah built a shrine, consecrated one of his sons to be his priests. Um, the priests were supposed to be of the tribe of Levi. And this section ends with the theme of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it's really easy to take this to mean that there was no physical king in Israel, because that time doesn't come about until we get into the book of, uh, well, later into Samuel. And so it certainly applies that way. But if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the book of Judges, God set up Israel to be a theocracy. In other words, God set up Israel so that he would be their king. So you can also take it to mean that in those days there was no king in Israel, that they didn't even recognize the authority of God as their king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what we call moral relativism. And this is a sad but true indictment of our society as well. Most people simply think they can do whatever they want. And we are seeing the consequences of that mindset worldwide. As people try to set aside the absolute moral authority of God revealed to us in the Bible, then we see chaos, where all social order is lost. And as I was thinking about this, I decided to take a moment to talk about what we call the moral argument for the existence of God. The moral argument for the existence of God is the idea that morality proves that God is real, that God exists. Now, how does that work? Well, arguments from what is known as moral normativity, right? Say that three times fast. Moral normativity, which is the idea that there is some aspect of morality in every culture around the world. And God is the best and most likely only explanation for this, concluding that God must exist. Since there is a worldwide agreement that there are certain things that are wrong. For example, every society just about throughout the history of the earth has agreed that murder is wrong, right? You can, we're not talking about human sacrifice. They thought that was worship. But you just couldn't go over to your neighbor's house and hit him in the head with a rock because you felt like it. There were consequences from that. All the way back to um, 
the Code of Hammurabi, as far as what's written down, there were consequences for it. You just couldn't do that. Well, how? How did these societies all around the world come up with the fact that you shouldn't just randomly kill somebody? Where did that come from? Well, that means there must be a moral authority given, and that must come from outside of humanity, because think about it. If evolution were true, morality doesn't make sense. It's survival of the fittest. Why would I want my neighbor to be alive when that neighbor may take up resources that I could use? So the idea that a moral code would arise by accident flies in the face of evolution. Thus, that moral authority had to come from outside of humanity, which means God exists. And the fact that people have tried to make truth subjective, right? We see that all over the place. You live your truth. You don't get to live your truth. You either live God's truth or you're in violation of the truth. It's that simple. And we see, of course, that this has just increased confusion around the world. Confusion in our societies. It's breaking down the family. It's destroying the fabric of society. Now, idolatry, there's two things that we need to talk about. First, idolatry is always a sign that a person has lost the consciousness of the presence of God. Throughout history, people have always sought, in some way, the divine. And for a person who's supposed to know the one true God, any type of idolatry is a sign that that person has lost the consciousness or an awareness of the constant presence of God. Second, it often shows that that person is desiring the presence of God. And so they make an idol or they worship some artifact in order to try and recapture what they've lost. This can, people, this can happen with people who don't know Christ and they have an emptiness in their lives that they will try to fill with idols like pleasure or money. But it can also happen to us when we are not regularly, I can't say regularly apparently, in the word, in prayer, in worship, in fellowship, and in service to others. We can lose or at least have reduced our consciousness of God and we begin to turn to other things to fill it. Verse 7. In verse 7, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite, and he was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah as he journeyed, and Micah said to him, Where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, Dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. 
Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as a priest. Poor, poor Micah. This isn't going to work out particularly well, if you know what happens in chapter 18. So Micah makes a Levite who's passing through his new priest and pays him to do so. He thinks this is going to bring God's blessing on him. But the priests were supposed to perform their duties in the tabernacle, not in some random person's house. They were also supposed to be cared for by the tithes brought in to the Lord at the tabernacle and not necessarily supposed to take side jobs. And don't forget, this was all being done before an idol and a false shrine that Micah's mom had made, that Micah had enshrined in his house, which was disobedient to the Lord. As soon as the Levite saw that there was an idol in Micah's house, he should have been like, "Uh uh-uh, this is wrong. So here we see the problem of disobedience and the foolish mindset that disobedience could lead to blessing. Disobedience leads to consequence, not to blessing. 1 Samuel 12, 14 through 15 says, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father. And at the time Samuel was saying that, the fathers that he was referring to would be the folks we're reading about in the book of Judges. Because the time of Samuel, Samuel was technically, not technically, Samuel was the last judge. And then he says, you will be a father to me. Now Jesus dealt with this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 9 through 12. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you've got to think about this. Father, Right? Do we know of anybody or any particular religious group that calls their religious leaders father? Yes, we do. The Catholic Church does that. (coughs) Jesus specifically forbid that practice. Think of some of the other things. The word pope means papa. It's another word for father. How about the word abbot? Right? Several, not just the Catholic Church, have abbots within their religious hierarchy. The word abbot comes from the Jewish word for father, Abba. Technically the Jewish word for daddy. What about those who insist on being called reverend? Have I ever told you guys the story about Pastor Tom? I want to feel, maybe it's been a while. So I used to, uh, years ago when we lived in North Dakota, I uh, worked at a home for troubled youth. And the home was owned by and run by 
uh, one of the Lutheran denominations. It may have been before the Lutherans split. So anyways, it was run by a Lutheran denomination. And so, uh, like, I could lead worship for the kids. We did chapel once a week. But I, I wasn't allowed to give a message because I wasn't Lutheran. Well, so I would go up and lead worship, and I would introduce the, the pastor from the local Lutheran church who came and gave the message to the kids. And I would introduce him as pastor, well, let's call him Bill. I doubt he's watching Jeff Beaver. And I'd say, all right, Pastor Bill's turn. Come on up. So one day, he said, you know, I, I'd like to talk to you. Can you stop by my office? Sure. So I stopped by his office. He said, well, I just I want to explain to you that while pastor is what I do, my title is reverend. Now, y'all know me. And if you think I'm obnoxious now, it used to be worse. And I said, okay, Pastor Bill, and I walked out of his office. I refused to call him reverend. Just like I, nobody's allowed to call me reverend. You know what reverend means? It means you revere. Right? The only person we should revere, the only name we should revere is God's. There's nothing reverent about Jason. Not the name, and sometimes not the person. So I, I just, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. We do need to question the motivation of this Levite. As it appears, he is in it for the money, which is always a bad idea. First Peter chapter 5, in the first, I think it's five or six verses, elders are warned to not be greedy for gain. Right? That's elders of the church who don't do it for the money. Um, apparently, nobody told this particular Levite. So we pick up in chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. That's a very kind way of putting it. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah to Eshtaol, right? Those were, that's uh, the area where Samson lived, if you remember, to spy out the land and search it. They said to them, go, search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. While they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, Thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. So they said to him, Please inquire of God, that we may know whether this journey on which we will go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. So the five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. So here's an interesting tidbit. 
the Danites had yet to take their inheritance. This, as we know from Joshua, was disobedience in and of itself, as they had been commanded to take their land long ago. Depending on when exactly this fits into the book of Judges, it could have been several hundred years that the tribe of Dan had been disobedient in going and taking their inheritance. On their way, they stop at Micah's house and inquire of the Lord from the Levite, whose voice they recognized. Well, this means they must have known him somehow. Well, he was dwelling in Jerusalem, so perhaps at some point in time, they had been dwelling in Jerusalem as well. He tells them how Micah was taking care of them and then tells them to go in peace and speaks a blessing over them that the presence of the Lord would be with them. They went and found the area of Laish and decided it was a good spot because they were secure, they had no real military, they had no law and order, they were too far away from anyone who could help them. Um, we know that the spring in Laish was and is a very strong spring of water. It's one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. Uh, the word Jordan actually means down from Dan, uh, because before we're done, Dan will take this area of land. Now here's the real problem. Back in Joshua chapter 19, verse 47, the Danites had already conquered this area and renamed it Dan. So somewhere along the way, they gave up their inheritance. And I think there's an important spiritual application here for us. We should never give up territory we have already gained victory over in Christ. In other words, don't go backwards in your faith. You have to keep moving forward. Because if you're not intentionally moving forward in your relationship with Christ, you're going backward because there is no standing still. Jesus told us in Luke 9.62 that no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Verse 8. Then he arose early in the morning. That's the wrong chapter. Verse 8. Then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtaol, and their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. When you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah to Eshtaol, armed with weapons of war. Now you have to consider, like we always say, right? they only counted men. They only counted men between the age of 20 and 50 years old. So it's possible this could have been several thousand people, not just the 600 men. Because there could have been teenage boys, there could have been wives, there could have been children, there could have been men who were over the age of 50. Uh, it's very possible that there were a number uh, uh, more that's much greater than just the 600 that were counted. So they went up and they encamped in Kirjith, Jerim, and Judah. Therefore, they call that place Mahanadan to this day. Kind of sounds Italian, doesn't it? Not Italian, Hawaiian. Kind of sounds Hawaiian, Mahanadan. Nobody ever laughs at my really bad jokes. At least roll your eyes. Um, 
it was called that to this day. There it is, west of Kirjath-Jerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So long story short, the spies come back and they say, hey, don't be lazy. We need to go get this land. It's a good land. It's got everything we need. So they do. Uh, however many it actually was, there were 600 men who were armed for war. And they head out. So we get to verse 14. And this, where, this is where this chapter gets really interesting to me. And the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now therefore consider what you should do. So they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. That doesn't sound like a greeting to me. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up, entering there. They took the carved image, an ephod. And if you remember, an, an ephod, there's, there's several words that are translated ephod, but it was usually a type of robe. Uh, and then the household idols and the molded image. And the priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with the weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod and the household idols and the molded image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? Right? So they come up and these five guys go, right, there's, there's all this stuff in this house we know about. What do you think we should do? So all the guys, all the warriors, go stand outside the gate of this house and send the five guys in to rob Micah. And finally, the priest goes, hey, guys, um, what are you doing? That's not cool. And they said to him, shut up. Actually, you know, King, New King James here says, be quiet. But, you know, in Hebrew, really, they're like, shut up. Put your hand over your mouth. So really shut up. And come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? So the priest's heart was glad, little money grubber. And he took the ephod. So he ends up stealing them. He took the ephod, the household idols, and the carved image and took this place among the people. Dude, not cool. This is, this is an ultimate dude not cool moment. So first off, these five guys, and apparently the Levite, and, and probably Micah had shown them some kindness when they were coming through. So they decide they're going to steal Micah's stuff. The Levite sees it, and he goes, hey, what are you doing? They're like, shut up. Why don't you just come with us? Why be a priest to him? You can be a priest to all of us. And this made his heart glad, and he ends up being the one to do the thieving. So don't you think this guy was in it for the money? I mentioned last week that we can do the right thing with the wrong motivation. Here, we see them doing the wrong thing with a horrible motivation. Doubly wrong. Verse 21. Poor, poor Micah. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. When they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, what ails you that you have gathered such a company? Maybe it's because you just robbed him. So he said, you have taken away my goods, which I made, and the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? 
And the children of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Whoa, Dan. The tribe of Dan. The children of Dan went their way, and Micah saw that they were too strong for him, and he turned and went back to his own house. So Micah and some of his neighbors get together, so apparently all of his neighbors were part of worshiping his false idols. And they go after the Danites and complain. Um, it is kind of interesting. What, what did they complain about? You stole my God. If your God can be stolen, I'm pretty sure it's not a God. I'm just throwing that out there. Right? How many people make their possessions their gods? If your God can be stolen, it's not a God. So the Danites, the godly tribe of Dan, they rob Micah, they steal his priest, and on their way, Micah comes up and goes, hey guys, why'd you do that? And they said, listen, you should go home before we kill you and your entire family. Dude! I, it just boggles my mind. And, and so of course, Micah realizing that they were too strong for him, you know, at least Micah had a bit of a brain, he went home. And this just continues to show the condition of the people in the land and the lack of all integrity among the people. Just, oh, mind-boggling. Verse 27. So they took the things Micah had made and the priests who had belonged to him and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. Okay. Remember way back when, when we were in, in Genesis, I kept obsessing about the fact that they took care of, such good care of their donkeys? What else would you burn a city with? Other than fire. Right? And this was boggling my mind a little bit last week. When, when, so two weeks ago we were talking about Samson, and Samson's companion said, we're going to burn... To his, to his wife, we're going to burn you and your father's household with fire. If somebody said that to me, I, I, the sarcasm in me is what would get me killed in that very moment. Because I think I would say, well, what else would you burn us with? The following week, Samson burns their field. Guess what he burned it with? Fire. And then the people burned his wife and his father's, her father's household with fire. And here they burn the city with fire. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not trying to be irreverent towards the word of God. Um, it's just that's how my mind works. I, what, el what else would you burn the city with? So anyways, there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. Now, if you were going to just rebuild it, why did you burn it down to begin with? And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father. They already did this back in Joshua chapter 19. But, you know, we're just going to pass on. Uh, so they named it after their father Dan, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and, the sons, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Now, I find that very interesting. Because we're not given the Levite's name until right there. Why? I don't know. That's a question I can't answer. 
But Jonathan was their priest and his sons, and they, we get his family name, um, right? And we know that Gershom was part of, uh, no, my brain is failing me at the moment. Anyways, he was some sort of Levite. I believe Gershom was one of, one of the uh, sons of Levi, but not of the family of Aaron. So he could never have been a high priest, but he was still supposed to be serving in the tabernacle. And he said him and his sons served the tribe of Dan, who set up this idol to be worshipped. So they set up for themselves that carved image. And all the time, it says in verse 31, oh wait, I skipped a part, uh, until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. And that, to me, is a very interesting note that's added to the end of this chapter. So Jonathan, they all became priests, but they all served before this idol. And all of his sons served before this idol until the time of the captivity. Now, you have to think about that. Because from this point until the time of the captivity was hundreds of years. Right? We have to establish the kingdom under Saul. Then we have to reestablish the kingdom under David. And then under Solomon. And then the kingdom gets split. And then it's hundreds of years until they finally go into captivity. That whole time. Here, when they could have gone to the house of God in Shiloh, they chose to worship before an idol. Then you're talking later when Solomon built the temple, they were still worshiping before their idol. They remained in idolatry until the captivity. Just mind-boggling. Now, let's do, I'm going to give you a little archaeological fun fact. So archaeologists have uncovered what is known as Tel Dan, right? It's the Tel of Dan. It's the archaeological site. And they've uncovered a lot of interesting artifacts, including the original gate for the city of Laish, the city that they burned with fire. When the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom under the kingship of Jeroboam, when Solomon's son Rehoboam messed things up, we'll get to that in 1 Kings chapter 12, the first thing Jeroboam did was set up idols so the people wouldn't go back to Jerusalem to worship God. One of those idols, and well, both of them were golden calves, but one of them was set up in Dan. Archaeologists have actually uncovered the altar at Dan that held this idol. Now, two more interesting facts. When the northern kingdom went into captivity to the Assyrians, the first tribe taken the tribe of Dan. You want to know a second interesting fact? When you get up into the book of Revelation, uh, I'm, I'm, reading the, the, I'm reading Revelation in my, my own devotional time at the moment. When you get up into the book of Revelation and 144,000 witnesses are named, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, guess which tribe is left out? Dan. Dan permanently scarred their place before God. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be Danites in heaven. 
right? I'm sure some of them repented. I'm sure some of them worshiped the one true God. I'm sure some of them were bothered by the idolatry. I have to be convinced that some of them were. But overall, the tribe of Dan lost its place. That, to me, is quite frightening. And something we're going to talk about on Sunday. So next week, we're going to see more of this confusion as we finish the book of Judges. Next week is one of the most brutal accounts in the book of Judges. Uh, and actually leads to another civil war. And we've already seen at least one, right? If I remember correctly, it's only been one, but we've seen one other civil war already. And we're going to see another one. Uh, however, as the book of Judges closes, we will move into the book of Ruth, which, as I mentioned at the beginning, took place during the book of Judges. And what I love about that is it shows us that God was still working among his people, among a remnant at least, even if the rest of the nation had gone off the rails. And I think this is true for us today as well. Though the world has gone off its rails, though our nation has gone off its rails, God is still working among us. And he wants to do a greater work among us. We have to follow him into that work and rely upon his grace and strength to move us in that direction. So until next week, when I hope to finish the book of Judges, let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, for your great love and grace that you pour out on us through him. Father, may, as I prayed over last week, may we learn from the mistakes of the people in Scripture who came before us. God, help us not to follow that path, but instead to look to you, to trust in you, to put our hope in you, so that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Bye, Facebook. Have a good night. That's from breakfast this morning. Back country.